Here's another Bible study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. Acts chapter 8. I've entitled this Out of the Salt Shaker. And I know there's a lady that wrote a book about being out of the salt shaker and talking about into the world. You know, we as, uh, as I read earlier before worship, Jesus said that we are the salt of the earth. And, uh, you know, salt uh, is a seasoning. It flavors, it adds flavor to things. And it also is preservative. And you and I as believers, we are that seasoning of the Holy Spirit in this world around us in this generation and uh, we have that preserving or restraining influence the holy spirit in us and so uh, we're going to look at the uh, what happens to the christians here in acts chapter 8 the first early church what happens to them one of the things i want to point out to you is last week we talked about stephen stephen he, he was the first martyr for his faith he was stoned and uh, and killed and uh, um, that event kind of marks a turning point in the story of the book of Acts. There's a shift of the gospel from the Jews to the Gentiles at that point. And chapter 7 kind of marks that when God sets the nation of Israel aside. Now, People are still, Jewish people are still going to be saved. It's not like God has forsaken the Jewish people. But now his focus is going to be uh, drawn to another group of people or, or turned to the church is going to be focused on another group of people. Like I said, individual Jews would still be saved, but the nation as a whole will not be until they see their Messiah uh, at the second coming of Christ and then they will be delivered. And so back in chapter 7, and I just want to back up a little bit because it kind of fits in with what we're talking about today. In Acts chapter 7, verse 58, when Stephen was stoned, it says, And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And so now we are going to be introduced to Saul here in Acts chapter 8, verse 1. Now Saul was consenting to his death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. It says there that Saul was consenting to Stephen's death. That word consenting, uh, when you consent to something, well, this is what it means. It means to be, compl uh, to be pleased together with, to approve together with others, and even to applaud. And so this was uh, Saul, who would later be Paul. Uh, he was applauding. He was completely, wholeheartedly in agreement with the stoning of Stephen. And then it says, At that time a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. You know, we call Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20, the Great Commission, if you're familiar with the Great Commission. Jesus said this, he said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's the Great Commission. 
Well, the Great Commission really was split into three phases for the early church. Phase one, or a, phase A, I might call it, was back in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where Jesus said, You shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So phase A was to be witnesses to Christ for Christ in Jerusalem. And they had been witnesses to the Lord in Jerusalem. We see that in, in uh, earlier chapters from the day of Pentecost. You know, the church is just growing and people are getting saved left and right. But at the trial of the Sanhedrin, you know, when you read your Bibles, it says Stephen's defense and maybe Stephen's trial. It really wasn't Stephen's trial. It was the Holy Spirit was trying and ending up convicting the Sanhedrin because they resisted the Holy Spirit. And so phase A, uh, bringing the gospel to Jerusalem, being witnesses in Jerusalem, that was passing. Now, again, in the book of Acts, and, and even today, there are Jewish people still getting saved. So it's not like God's forsaking the Jewish people. In fact, he hasn't forsaken the Jewish people. They are going to be set aside until the time of Jacob's trouble, the Bible calls. That's at the end, at the Great Tribulation. It's known as the 70th week of Daniel. That time period, that seven-year time, seven time period, God is again working on the nation of Israel. And at the end of that period is when they are going to recognize Jesus as their Savior. And so phase A is passing. It hadn't stopped entirely, but now the focus is on phase B, or I call it phase B. Jesus didn't say, now I want you to go to phase B, but that's what I call it. Phase B was Judea, or Judea and Samaria. And then there's a phase after that, phase C, the end of the earth. And, and all those phases, that great commission is still being accomplished today. It says something that's kind of interesting. It says that the apostles, you know, all the, all the church was scattered and they left Jerusalem except the apostles. And you go, well, what, why did the apostles stay behind? And the, the gospel doesn't really, or the book of Acts doesn't really tell us why. But if you think about it, before Christ's crucifixion, what did, what did the apostles do, the disciples do when Jesus was arrested? They scattered. They didn't scatter for a good reason. They scattered because they were afraid. And so now maybe, and I'm not saying that thus saith the Lord, but maybe after they have seen the resurre resurrected Christ, they're like, you know what, we're going to stay here and we're going to keep ministering. We're, we're, we're going to stay here no matter what happens. You know, God has a plan for each of our lives. God has a plan for your life. And God has a plan for my life. And the first thing we need to realize is that God is sovereign. And, it, you know, sometimes you go, what, what do you mean by God is sovereign? Well, what that means really is God created the heavens and the earth and all that is in them. I mean, God's creator of everything. And God is supreme in his rule and authority over all creation. There's nothing that's not under God's authority. And so afflictions, trials... Even persecution, they happen, and yet God is still sovereign. God hasn't not become sovereign all of a sudden over those things. No, God is still sovereign. But those trials and persecutions and afflictions that happen to us, they're never random. They may seem random. They may come out of left field, but they're never random. It's never beyond the scope of God's sovereignty. We even see that in the Gospels before Christ's crucifixion. 
When Jesus says to Peter, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. Satan needed to ask permission to afflict uh, Peter, to tempt Peter, to deny the Lord. We see it in the Old Testament, the book of Job. You know, the Lord and Satan, God's, they're having this conversation up in heaven. And the first thing that Lord says to Satan about Job, the man, he says, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. So you can, you can take away his house. You can take away his family. You, you can take away his job, his livelihood. But you can't touch him. But then a little bit later, the second time the Lord speaks to Satan, he says, Behold, he is in your hand. But spare his life. So then all of a sudden, you know, Job got all these boils and things happening to him, but he didn't die. You see, God was still in control. And God has a purpose even in allowing persecution. For the Christians here in Jerusalem, God used the persecution that they were experiencing to move the church into phase B, which was to spread the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria. You know, God said, you shall be witnesses for me in Jerusalem and, uh, excuse me, in Judea and Samaria. God doesn't say how it's going to happen. That's his prerogative. So God used persecution to scatter the believers and to spread the gospel beyond Jerusalem. And you know, we always want God's will, right? We're always seeking the Lord. Lord, um, you know, when we're trying to make a decision in life, Lord, is this the door you want me to go through? And sometimes the Lord leads us through open doors, and sometimes he closes doors. doesn't mean he's not leading us. He's still leading us. But sometimes the doors that God opens for us, it's not the door that we would choose for ourselves. It's not like, this is my, man, I think this would be perfect. And God says, uh, that's not my will for you. But this is. When those things happen, you need to remember something. You need to remember that God loves you, right? He has a plan for your life, and it's for good, it's not for evil. He loves you. And his plans, the things that he allows you to go through, they're not random, and they're not a surprise to God. Now, I'll be honest with you, things happen to me that, I mean, just like, where did that come from? Totally out of left field. I didn't see that coming. I may not have, but God did. And he wants you and I to trust him in it. Because he is a loving God. You know, you get into something you can't see, you got to go back to what you know. What do I know? I know God's a God that loves me. He gave his life for me. And, and his plans are good. They're not for evil. And so he wants you and I to trust him in it and then rely on him through those. You know, as I quoted earlier, Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. You know, I, I think now that the winter is kind of setting in and the humidity level is definitely going to start decreasing. I don't know if you've noticed that, you know, that there's a difference, especially if you're like, like in our kitchen, for example. Um, this All this summer, you know, I, we've got the salt shaker and uh, I'm trying to get salt out. And I'm like, there's nothing coming out. And I'm looking and it's all clumped up in the, in the top of the salt or in the bottom of the salt shaker. And so what do I do? I bang it, I shake it, make it, okay, now, now, now it's pouring out, you know. That's what God does to us sometimes. Sometimes he needs to shake up the salt or shake you and I up to get us to pour out. And that's exactly what he did here for the church in Jerusalem. 
the persecution. They didn't, I'm sure they didn't say, yeah, we would really like to be persecuted. No. But God used it in their lives for a purpose. We get to verse 2, and it says, And devout men carried Stephen to his burial, or burial. I always say burial, so if I say it, just that's uh, just my habit, I'm sorry. And made great, a great lament. I get, I get ribbed about that sometimes, so anyways. Um, anyways. Uh, where am I? Oh, verse 2. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. Now, every time I say that, you guys are going to laugh, I'm sure. But anyways. You know, um, Chuck Smith has an interesting comment on this. You know, the, the fact that they made great lamentation over him. Obviously, they loved Stephen. Obviously, he was loved by the believers there, the church there. But he thinks part of the reason might be that prior to Paul's teaching in First Thessalonians, uh, when Paul was teaching to the church in Thessalonians, he believes that Christians at this point had a misconception about the second coming of Christ. They believed that believers who died would miss out on Christ's physical return to the earth. And you know, the disciples, they thought Jesus could come back any time. Paul thought Jesus could come back any time in his life. You know, the rapture of the church. Uh, For you and I, man, Jesus could come back any time. That's a good thing to have that expectancy because then we have the right focus. And so it's quite possible that Paul corrected that misconception in 1 Thessalonians 4 when he talked about the dead in Christ and how they would rise first when Jesus returns for his church. Moving on to verse 3. It says, As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. There's a transition there, right? Before, he didn't physically stone Stephen, but he stood there in hearty agreement, full agreement, uh, to his death. He was more, in that case, a passive participant. But now, now he's made havoc. What does that mean? It means to treat shamefully or with injury, to ravage, to devastate, to ruin. He went from being a passive, you know, I agree, and man, this is awesome, I'm glad you guys are doing it, I agree with it, to actively doing it himself. Entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. This guy, you know, interesting. He wasn't just arresting the men, but the women also. Which strikes me as interesting because what about their children? Did he arrest? It doesn't say the children, but either he had took the children with him or he left them without their parents. I mean, that, this is how harsh he was. In fact, Paul describes himself in several places in the Bible. And later on in Acts chapter 26, when he's giving his, his testimony, he says, Many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. He also said, I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. And of course, you know, later on, he's on his way to Damascus in Syria. And that's when Christ reveals himself to him. In Galatians, Paul said this, I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. He later on says that he was more exceedingly zealous than any of the other Pharisees around him. In 1 Timothy 1, he says, I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man. What does an insolent man mean? 
This is what insolent means. A persecutor of others who mistreats them for the pleasure with which the affliction of the wrong brings him. In other words, he enjoyed afflicting people. What That goes from passive to active there. And so, verse 4. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Who were those that were scattered? It wasn't the apostles. They stayed back in Jerusalem. It was the church. Listen, I just rhetorically, I want you to just think about this. If your attitude, even this morning, is that the church is some sort of a impersonal entity. You know, we call things the church. Maybe you might have this attitude. You might say, the church does not meet my needs. And people say that quite frequently. In fact, when people leave, sometimes I hear that. The, the church has not met my needs. Or maybe the church should be supporting this, and you can fill in the blank. And I, I've heard that before, too. People say, the church should be doing this. Oh, okay. Or, I, or maybe the attitude is, I don't need to do that. The church will take care of it. I'm bringing up those phrases because if your attitude, if those are the things that you think, then you don't understand what the church is. You really don't. The word church is the word ecclesia, and it means called out ones. So let me ask you, are you a called out one? What do you mean called out? Called out from what? Called out of sin and called out of the world into the kingdom of God. If that describes you, you are the church. I am the church. We are the church. And so what's fascinating to me is that those who were fed, the people that had got saved, they're growing under the apostles' teaching, they were fed, now they're taking what they learned, and now they're sharing it with other people. Those who were disciples, now they're making disciples. That's a good thing. That's a healthy, healthy thing. Can you imagine the disruption that this persecution would have happened to you if you were living in Jerusalem at this time? You know, you're completely displaced. You have to leave your home. You have to leave your livelihood. So there'd probably be a financial hardship. And just the fact of having to go somewhere where you don't know, I mean, it's just like, we just got to get out of here. It's so bad. You know, many times your and my lives are disrupted from our normal day-to-day routines. And sometimes... For us, serving the Lord gets put on hold because this disruption is so overwhelming. It's just like, i got to deal with this disruption. I can't deal with anything else. For the church in Acts, the very disruption itself caused them to minister. The very disruption. They went and they ministered. I think this is a great example of ministering to the Lord wherever you're planted. And that's what we see here. And so we move on to verse 5. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And we, we met Philip before. He's not one of the disciples. There was a disciple named Philip. This one is Philip. He's one of the seven men of good reputation in Acts 6, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. What was his job before? His job was just serving tables. He was like a waiter, just serving the tables. And now, but he was faithful in it. And the Lord now is giving him more responsibility. And so he goes to the Samaritans. Well, who are the Samaritans? They're a group of people that never smile. See? Just kidding. I had to find a picture that kind of fit, and I'm like, they look really like angry. But anyways, I don't know. There's probably a story behind that picture. But. 
Who were the Samaritans? Well, according to 2 Kings chapter 17, the Samaritans were a people. When, when Assyria took over uh, Israel, the northern ten tribes of Israel, and they, they brought the, the, the Jewish people into captivity. In 2 Kings, 7, uh, uh, 2 Kings chapter 17, it said that the king of Assyria repopulated Judea or Samaria with peoples for other, from other nations that they had taken into captivity, conquered people. And so there was this group of people that they brought into uh, Samaria. Well, in Jesus' day, the Jews treated Samaritans like Gentiles. In John chapter 4, we read Jews have no dealings with Gentiles, or excuse me, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. They won't have anything to do with them. In John chapter 8, the Pharisees, they call Jesus a Samaritan. They say, do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? So there's some animosity between the Jewish people and uh, the Samaritans. So the Jewish people looked down on the Samaritans. The Samaritans themselves, they had a different opinion about their background or what they, where they came from. They think that they descended from the Jewish tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh, and their opinion was that exile of, in, that went into Syria uh, of Israel into the, of the Israelites into Assyria. It wasn't full scale and it wasn't permanent, and they believed that the Jews were guilty of apostasy. They thought uh, during the time of uh, well, let me just read this. It's better than me trying to trying to just quote it. By setting up heretical sanctuaries, this is why they, were, they thought the Jews were guilty of apostasy. By setting up heretical sanctuaries during the time of Eli, rather than staying with the only holy place on Mount Gerizim. You know, when the tabernacle, they, that when, when they were up in Bethel in that area, that was, that's, like, that's the holy place. The Samaritans therefore consider themselves true Israelites in descent and worship. And so they thought that the Jews were the guys, the people out in Jerusalem, that they were the ones that were the heretics. And I was doing a little bit of research. You know, the Samaritans are still alive today as a people group. In fact, they still do sacrifices up in northern Israel. It's fascinating if you ever want to look at it, look at it on, on the Internet. But um, I read this. I came across this. Recently, DNA analysis suggests a common ancestry of Samaritan and Jew going back to the time of the Assyrian conquest of the kingdom of Israel. So genetically, they're, they're kind of, they've got the same genes, basically. So it's just very interesting. But anyways, whatever, whatever, whatever the real truth is behind all of that, with the distrust uh, and tension that existed between both people groups, it's interesting that Philip chooses to go down to the Samaritans to share the gospel. Why? Well, Philip no longer looked at people the way people do, right? That, the, he, he, now he sees the Samaritans as God sees them, not as the way the Jews typically see him. How did God see the Samaritans? He saw them with compassion as sheep without a shepherd. You know, that's what the Lord wants you and I to do. He wants us to see people the way he sees them. You know, the need for the gospel is universal. Everybody needs Jesus Christ. Everybody needs a personal relationship with the Lord. Verse 6. And the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits 
crying with a loud voice came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. And there was great joy in that city. Here's the miraculous, spectacular gifts of the Holy Spirit on display. And some people say that the gifts of the Spirit ceased with the passing of the apostles. Well, the interesting thing is Philip wasn't an apostle. He wasn't one of the 12 apostles. He was a B-apostle, not an apostle. And so the multitudes, the, the Samaritans, they're hearing the things that Philip is speaking, and they're seeing the miracles which he did. See, the miracles was not Philip's ministry. The miracles followed or accompanied the teaching of the world, word, excuse me, to validate the teaching of the word. That, Philip's thing is, I'm, I'm going to go out here and do all these signs and wonders. For, no, no, no. He's teaching the word, and the Holy Spirit through him is, is doing the signs and the wonders. That's the proper focus on the miraculous and the supernatural signs and wonders. Verse 9, but there was a certain man called Simon who previously practiced sorcery in the city and he astonished the people of Samaria claiming that he was someone great to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest saying, this man is the great power of God. And they heeded him because he had astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. The Bible, some people call him Simon Magus. He was a magician, and the, magic, the, the magic was sorcery. And so he astonished, or he bewitched them with his magic. Now, does that mean that he was, you know, just fooling them, and, you know, one of these, like, psychic hotline people that, you know, they just, you know, was it just magic? He was just fooling people, or was the occult, the power of the occult behind it? The, we don't know, but it doesn't matter, because either way, he was getting in the way of people coming into faith in God. He was, he was making himself out to be something special. So we learn a lot about Simon here. First of all, he was prideful. The Bible says he claimed to be someone great. He liked the attention that people gave him. You like it when, you like it when people give you attention? It feels good, doesn't it? He loved it. He had a corner on the market, so to speak, until Philip came. Verse 12 but when they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Then Simon himself also believed. And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed, seeing the miracles and the signs which were done. Now when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, who when they had come down, who when they had come down, uh, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet he had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. The Samaritans, not talking about Simon, the Samaritans, they heard what Philip preached concerning Jesus Christ. They believed, and they were born again. Why did they send for Peter and John? That's an interesting question. I think probably, most likely, it was for the Samaritan believers to understand that they were linked spiritually to the Jewish believers or the, the believers in Jerusalem and vice versa. They didn't want 
there to appear as a separate movement because that's kind of what was going on with Samaritans before. They had a separate movement, basically, a separate faith uh, from the Jewish people. And so that's quite possibly why uh, Peter and John came down. Now, some people say that God withheld the Spirit until the coming of Peter and John, and that was a unique situation for that purpose, to join the Samaritans, uh, Christians, and the Jerusalem, Jerusalem Christians as one church. It sounds reasonable to me, but why would it only happen in the case of the Samaritans and not in the case of the Gentiles? See, I, I, I'm not sure if that's, I agree with that necessarily. You know, the Bible teaches when a person accepts Christ, they receive the indwelling Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit indwells them. He's a sign and a seal of their salvation. And the moment you come to faith in Christ, he starts doing that inner work of conforming the believer into the image of Christ. But this baptism of the Holy Spirit is when he comes upon the believer in such a way that he flows out from the believer uh, to impact others. It's what Jesus talked about in John 7, verse 38. He said, He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. It, it's coming upon and flowing out. Now, when Peter and John laid their hands on, on the Samaritans and they received the Holy Spirit, there had to have been some kind of a physical manifestation. We're not told what, but there had to have been some kind of a physical manifestation. Uh, manifestation. It was enough for Simon to notice a tangible change in these people. In verse 18 it said, And when Simon saw, through the laying on of the hands, apostles' hands, the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, that anyone on whom I lay my hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, Your money perish with you, because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of this, wicked, of this your wickedness, and pray, God, if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. Now, we don't really get this in the English language and the translation that we have. When Peter is talking to uh, Simon... The Greek in verse 20 is so emphatic that J.B. Phillips, you know, J.B. Phillips has a translation of the Bible. This is how he translates it because the Greek is so emphatic. He says, but Peter said to him, to hell with you and your money. I mean, I don't mean to offend anyone, but that's exactly what it says there. How dare you think you could buy the gift of God? Talk about severe. Why such a severe rebuke? I think it's because Simon was a counterfeit Christian. This was another attempt by Satan to infiltrate the church. You know, Jesus foretold of the Simons who would infiltrate the church in the parable of the wheat and the tares. And if you know that parable, the, the, an enemy at night sows these tares. And the tares, they look, initially, they look like heads of wheat. I mean, they look like grains of wheat. They, it looks like, but later on it becomes evident that they're not. In verse 12, the Samaritans believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ. In verse 13, 
Simon, it says, also believed and was baptized. It doesn't mention that Simon also believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God. It doesn't say what's, who or what Simon believed in. You see, not all belief is saving belief. We saw that in John chapter 2 in Jesus' ministry. In John chapter 2 verse 23 says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men. And he had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. You see, externally, Simon went through all the motions. You know, if they had a sinner's prayer, he, he, he probably prayed the sinner's prayer. He probably, well, he obviously, he, he even went through the waters of baptism. And from the outside, you'd look at Simon and go, well, he, he, he took those steps. He prayed and he's baptized. He's one of us. And initially, he probably could pass as one of them. Initially. You know, Jesus said in John 8, 31, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. It was just to say, well, I believe in Jesus Christ. Yeah, okay, are you abiding? Are you abiding in the word of God? Are you abiding in God's principles, his truths? Look at Simon before. He was prideful. He used magic, or it could have been occultic powers, to draw attention to himself. And it says that he claimed to be someone great. I think that's significant because the Samaritans also believed in the coming Messiah. And it could quite possibly be that Simon was passing himself off as a Messiah prior to Philip coming. So that was Simon before. Look at Simon now. Give me this power also that on anyone whom I lay my hands on, uh, may, whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. See, I don't think there was a change in Simon's pride. He wanted to be viewed once more as someone great. In fact, I think he was the, the chairman of the Make Simon Great Again Club. <laughs> it was like, oh, <laughs> the grunt, the groans. <laughs> I'm going to leave that up there for a minute. Let's sink in. I'm just kidding. You know, you contrast that with the Apostle Paul. Listen to what Apostle Paul said. Circumcised the eighth day, I'm reading out of Philippians 3. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted as loss for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things loss for the excellence of of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count, that as, count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ. Do you see the difference? See, Simon was just interested in the miraculous power of the Holy Spirit. I want to have that power too. He wasn't interested in Jesus Christ himself. You know, when a person, an individual... Or a church makes the miraculous signs and wonders their focus, they are missing the point of the signs and the wonders. They are missing the point and they're focusing on the pointer. You see, the gifts of the Spirit 
are a pointer. I I love this illustration that I came across. Here's a mother with a newborn infant. We see a mother over here with a newborn infant. She's She's got her infant on her lap, and it's sitting in the living room. It's a beautiful spring day. And outside the window, there's a bird. A beautiful bird lands on the tree right outside the window. And the mom is just, you know, playing with her, with her child and, you know, cuddling it and stuff. And, and she sees the bird landing on the window. And she goes, look at the bird over there. What does the infant do? The infant goes, oh, I, don't, I don't, no, no, the infant's looking at the finger. And you've seen that. Have you ever done that? Where the little baby, you put your finger up. What are they? They're not, they're not like, they're like, and they're, the baby's just looking at the infant's finger. That's what the gifts are. They're pointing to Jesus Christ. And unfortunately, some people just, they, they just look at the finger. Oh, wow, I want the finger. Listen, it's the spiritual infant that is mesmerized with the gifts and not what the gifts point to, Jesus Christ. I, I know it's a harsh thing to say, but it's true. Listen, I, I just got to say this. Don't worship the gifts. Worship the giver of the gifts. Worship Jesus Christ. That's the whole purpose, is to worship him. And so Peter said to Simon, you, your money perish with you, because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of this your wickedness, and pray, God, if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are bound by bitter... Uh, excuse me. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. Isn't that an interesting thing that Peter says? How did Peter see, you know, how did Peter know that Simon was poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity? That's a Holy Spirit gift of discernment. That's, that's a word of knowledge. That's, that's that gift being manifested right there. Poisoned by bitterness. The King James Version calls it the gall of bitterness. What does that mean? It, it, denotes, it denotes, excuse me, extreme wickedness highly offensive to God and all good men, likely to be hurtful and destructive to others. It's bitter anger that manifests itself in bitter, harmful speech and behavior. Did you know that believers can be poisoned by bitterness too? It's true. We can. Paul wrote to Christians. He's not, re- he's not reading to unbelievers. He's reading to the Christian church in Ephesus. In Ephesians 4, verse 30 and 32, he says this, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. He's speaking to Christians. Let all bitterness go away. The writer of Hebrews says this in chapter 12, verse 14, Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord, looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. Because if you don't deal with your bitterness, it's going to come out. It'll come out in your speech and your actions, and it'll start affecting others around you. It's, it's a poison. We need to be baptized with the Holy Spirit so that rivers 
of living water flows out from us, not poisonous bitterness that harms everybody that comes in contact with you. Listen, are you a poisonous well or are you a life-giving spring of living water? Jesus said this, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. You know, sometimes I hear people saying things and I hear what they're saying, but I'm, I'm also going, wow, there, there's, that, that's a bitter heart. I see some bitterness, really bitter. It's coming forward. We studied this proverb last Wednesday night. Proverbs uh, 18, life and death are in the power of the tongue. Now, I, I don't know what Simon said that, that or maybe he, didn't say, maybe he didn't say anything, but Peter was given this insight, the discernment of Simon. And it's from the Holy Spirit. So he, he nailed what Simon's problem was. Verse 24, Then Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me that none of the things which you have spoken may come upon me. Well, it sounds like he had a change of heart. Well, you know, it's interesting. It doesn't say that he repented. And he didn't pray himself. He asked Peter to pray for him so that the things that Peter said wouldn't happen to him. You know, early church tradition, and I'm talking like Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, Jerome. It's not in the Bible, but the church fathers, the, the church historians, the tradition is that Simon went on to become a heretic and he never really was a true Christian. That's what the traditions are. Verse 25. So when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. I, I love that. If we go back into the gospels, in John chapter 4, it says this, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize, but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. And I love this, but he needed to go through Samaria. That is significant because of the prevailing attitudes that the Jewish people had and the discrimination they had towards Samaritans and Samaritans had towards them. It wasn't a one-sided thing. The Jews took the long way around Samaria to get from Judea in the south up to Galilee in the north. They, they didn't take a straight line. They, they went woo, as far away because they didn't want to go through the land of the Samaritans. But Jesus went through Samaria there in chapter 4. And you guys know the story. He stops at the town called Sychar. And he sends his disciples into the town for food. And while he's there, a Samaritan woman comes and he meets the woman at the well, if you know that story in the Bible. And later on, and we won't have time to get into the discussion that they have, but later on his disciples come with food from the city, and they see Jesus talking, and what blows them away is here's Jesus talking to a woman, because in that culture, that just wasn't, you just didn't do that. And, and she's a Samaritan woman. How bad is that? Well, you know the story. The Samaritan woman runs into the city and tells the people of the city, here's a guy that's told me everything about myself. And the, the, all the Samaritans, they come out. The men of the city come out, and they start hearing Jesus. And at the end, they invite Jesus and his disciples to stay with them a few days. 
Now there's another story in the Gospels. Luke describes a time when Jesus and the disciples were traveling through Samaria and they planned to stop at a village in Samaria for the night. And it says that the Samaritans of that village rejected them. And James and John, his disciples, said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? Jesus rebuked them and says that they went on to another village. That's the, the background, the backstory behind all this. But now, Peter and John, as they return to Jerusalem, Peter and John stop at many Samaritan villages along the way, sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. What a transformation. A people that the Jews had no dealings with. They didn't trust them. They considered them as Gentiles, are now seeing people just as Jesus sees them, with compassion. Sheep who have no shepherd. What we see here is they really do have the heart of Jesus. I call this out of the salt shaker because, you know, you and I may experience a shaking and an unsettling in our lives. And we look at the direction our culture is going. And I think you and I as believers, the, the, the life that we know right now, I, I, I think it's changing. And I think it's going to get more and more difficult for you and I to live as believers. And there may even become some physical persecution. It, it may come to you and I. But when it happens, when you and I experience a shaking and an unsettling, and it may not be persecution, it may be something totally different, some kind of affliction of some sort. And we end up getting shook and unsettled and maybe even displaced. Listen, the Lord is putting you and I in a position, in a place that he wants to use you. There's a reason behind it. And it might, and quite possibly, just be for a season. And so the challenge for you and I is, okay, this is where I am. This is where the Lord has me. I, I know he loves me. I know he has a plan and a purpose for me. And this is probably a season. So rather than hunker down and I'm just going to just be miserable. and so, Man, Lord, how can you use me? How, how can I be, how can I minister to whatever you have in front of me? Wherever you've planted me. Whoever you've given me to talk to, Lord. That, that's what we call divine appointments. You know, sometimes divine appointments, I don't know, in my life, maybe you guys experience it, but in my life, they're not always like, it's like a flowery situation. Oh, how wonderful. Someone comes and says, hey, would you tell me about Jesus? You know, that doesn't happen. I have had, I did one time have some guy, I was going to do some counseling with him. He said, first thing he says, hey, before we go any further, I need to accept Christ. I'm like, okay, let's do it. You know, I was like, whoa, I love that. <laughs> it's not always like that. Sometimes it can be a very difficult, a difficult situation, an unsettling situation. But that doesn't change that the Lord still is in it. And so I just want to encourage you in that because I think we're, you know, I know we're all going to go through afflictions and trials. I mean, I, I can hear prayer requests from people. I know you guys are going through things. But I want you to trust the Lord and pray that you'd have the heart of the Lord in that, whatever that situation is. Don't grow bitter. Don't grow angry. Don't grow, okay, I'm, I'm just going to hunker down. I'm not going to do anything because I've just got to ride this thing out and then I'll start serving. No, no. The Lord's got you there for a reason. Allow him to work through you. Why don't you stand? Let's go, Lord, in prayer.